Welcome back to another edition of The Audible. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. We are taping on a Monday morning. It was an extremely eventful weekend, Stu. Uh, for those of you who didn't catch, Stu and I hopped on a kind of uh, impromptu Facebook Live session from my kitchen. Uh, Stu was at a cafe Where somewhere. everybody got to see you in glasses. Yeah, that was. I'm sure that was an attractive sight. Me with no sleep and glasses. But I, I had showered, so at least I handle that part of it um so let's get into the last mile stuff i know we covered a lot of it yesterday in lsu but for the people who didn't get a chance or can't stomach watching me in my kitchen uh reaction when you heard that okay this time it's it it really was the loser leaves town match between the auburn lsu matchup as we kind of talked about last week yeah i mean i can't say it was surprising going into the weekend even though and I, I think I wrote three different things last week that touched on, or if we include our podcast with Paul Feinbaum, three different things that touched on the, the hot seat bowl and how the loser was probably on his way out. But I didn't think at the time that it was going to be immediate. Uh, I just thought it meant they weren't going to be able to recover. But you were the one who convinced me Saturday night on our uh, you know, Audible Facebook Live show that there was a possibility they might just go ahead and fire Les Miles now. And And I think what made me realize, yes, this is definitely a possibility, is the way that they lost the game. I mean, I remember you know, we're all going crazy in the in the avocado room when the one second, it looks like they've won, and now they know it turns out they didn't get it off. And I remember just saying, I can't believe Les Miles' tenure is going to end on another clock management issue. And as I wrote uh, Sunday, you know, it was it was cruel and yet somehow fitting. Uh, because that was a part of his legacy there, where it was all these crazy endings and botching the clock and, you know, in some cases beating the clock. But more than that, you know, the fact that they were even in that situation to begin with, where you've got a Purdue cast-off quarterback trying to lead you down the field against a 1-2 and two Auburn team who they managed to keep out of the end zone and yet they're still losing – it just sums up how far this program had fallen, especially offensively. And so, like you said, why prolong it? Why give him the chance to try to coach himself out of it like he did last year when it just is so clear at this point that a change is needed? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I got a, I've gotten a lot of predictions wrong. <laughs> Oklahoma started, you know, at the top of that. And also I had LSU, you know, as a playoff team at the beginning of the year. I did tell uh, our crew and Tim Brando and and some of the other guys who work behind the scenes, we were watching the end of the LSU-Wisconsin game, and one of the guys who's in Tim's crew is a big LSU guy, went to school there, you know, worked around there, and I said, you watch. If they lose to Auburn, they're going to fire them, and Ed Ogeron's going to be the interim head coach, and who knows what happens then, because if he beats Alabama – game on there might be an interesting you know coaching search unfolding in that direction and we'll see what happens going forward i mean my thought here on this is you know les miles has been a fantastic guy for us to cover and you know look that he won a national title he did a lot of good things there you know i'm convinced that i'm short of nick saban if you stay anywhere for like a decade they get tired of you. There are people who are tired of, of Bob Stoops at OU, another guy who won a national title. Uh, you know, it just it just seems to be human nature with college football. And ultimately, there were flaws. I mean, the offense was seemed like it was stuck in the 70s all the time. Now, having said that, one of my big memories of Les, I covered a game. I think you were there, too. It was at LSU. They beat Florida and Tim Tebow. It was back in 2007. And they went for it on fourth down like 15 times, you know, and they, they were they were literally got it every time they went for it. And I remember walking into the locker room afterwards and on the big grease board from halftime, it was still up. And it said in all caps, four quarters of mean, nasty, tough ass football. And Tyson Jackson at the time was one of their better defensive linemen, better players. And he like kind of looked at the board when we were talking. He was like, that's LSU right there, that. And somewhere I think that mentality and mindset doesn't, you know, it's like it's a real disconnect from that to, ooh, I don't want to do that stuff that like Mike Leach does or, you know, the far, the further end of the spectrum. And I feel like they, 
know, whereas Nick Saban has been able to balance that and bring in, you know, not just not just Lane Kiffin, but before that, Jim McElwain and, and some other guys who are a little more, you know, open minded passing game, game guys. Les really was never able to do that. Yeah. And I mean, the guy was there for 12 years and I feel like he spent 12 years chasing uh, the ghost of Nick Saban. I can remember being at LSU that same season you're talking about when they won the national title. It was the second game of the season against Virginia Tech, and, and I think Virginia Tech was in the top ten, and they, they clobbered them. But that was the year Saban went back to college, back to Alabama, which you know the LSU fans considered to be a complete slap in the face. And I remember seeing Nick Satan T-shirts everywhere. They wanted, you know, they wanted to beat that guy badly, and for a while they were doing it fairly regularly. It was, it was an even rivalry, you know, the, the famous one versus two, nine to six game. Um, I'm pretty sure Alabama was favored in that LSU won, but, but it really, you know, sometimes you don't, there is not an exact moment when things begin to swing, but there certainly was with it, with less miles. It was the national title game, 21, nothing to Nick Saban, Ugh, that weird press conference afterward where Bobby a bear was going after him for his not playing Jarrett Lee. Not that they, it's not like they then turned around and went five and seven the next year, but they just, in fact, I think they had a really good season that next year. But they, from that point forward, people got increasingly, increasingly angry that it was no longer this, um, you know, that the two were no longer so closely connected. Alabama kept winning national titles and LSU never played for another one. If you're a betting man, Stu. Who do you think is the head coach at LSU in 2017? Well, that's a great question because all of the focus in the you know immediate aftermath has been on two names, and you wrote it yourself, Jimbo Fisher and Tom Herman. And if I don't know, I don't think either of those guys will be the head coach at LSU next year. So it's one of these things where careful what you wish for. Um, you know, yes, they needed to make a change. I don't think we could argue that, but. How often do you then turn around and get the home run guy? Notre Dame got the home run guy. And I don't want to jump the fence. We're going to go to talk about Notre Dame in a second. But Notre Dame actually got the obvious guy when he was, and that was Brian Kelly. And Florida got the obvious guy when it was Urban Meyer. Uh, well, it I, I just I, – I, that you're right, but it's not quite the same situation because those guys were replacing, you know, just coaches who failed miserably. This is – this is more like Tennessee and Philip Fulmer. Um, you know, we'll see how Charlie Strong pans out for Texas and Mac Brown. So, where do you think where do you think Tom Herman is coaching next year? Is he still at Houston? No, I'm starting to put my I'm starting to lean more and more toward USC fires Clay Helton and hires him. Well, if that's the case, if USC fires Clay Helton, you know, he's only coached six games, but they're one and five. USC really, really needs to have. Tom Herman ready to go in the press conference the next day. They can't do one of these things where USC fires the coach and then flails around at a coaching search where they're like, oh, maybe, uh, maybe Jack Del Rio will come back to college football. <laughs> Cause they do that and they screw it up. And, and there's you know, no knows? way to know. There's no way to know how Lynn Swan will handle this because he's never been an athletic director before. I don't know. Now, I mean, I, I, well, now we're going in another direction here with USC. Yeah, well, what, but that was a Friday night. That was – it's funny. On Friday night, we were talking about a completely different you know, high-profile program and are they going to have to fire their coach. And, and at first you think, oh, of course they're not going to fire Clay Helton on the first year on, as a permanent head coach and pay him all that money. But you know what? Over the weekend – remember, I'm in L.A. I'm hearing from USC people. If, this, if he doesn't have some sort of remarkable turnaround – um, and by the way, I do think they could get hot here in the middle of their schedule because it's a soft schedule, but then it gets hard again at the end. If he goes six and six, I, I don't see them bringing him back. And then you're right. It becomes very much like, and this is going back a ways, the year that Florida and Notre Dame were both vying for Urban Meyer. And Florida, Ron Zook, I mean, Ron Zook, uh, Jeremy Foley just beat them to it. I mean, he had them ready to go. He had them like basically locked and loaded before... Notre Dame had even decided to fire Tyrone Willingham. Um, same situation here. I think USC is the better job as it relates. Tom Herman is one Don't of the rare Dan guys. Don't tell Dan Rubenstein but... that. What's that? Don't tell Dan Rubenstein that. He thinks that only we West Coast national media still think USC is a great job. 
Well, that's because he he worships the ground and 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 uh, Eugene. Yeah. So he's not he's not being realistic. But here's why. Now, Tom Herman's one of the few coaches who I think would fit in in any cultural setting, any part of the country, any conference. Uh, he is a Calif Southern California native. Now he spent most of his college uh, coaching career in the Southwest, but the aspect of USC is by far the heavyweight school in the PAC 12. There's not a close second. And also USC is in the middle of very, very fertile recruiting base outside of South Florida and the probably the area where he's at right now. nothing is even close yet. All, most of those kids who grow up in Southern California grow up wanting to be Trojans. I mean, Jim Moore can beat them three years in a row, and they're still going to lose the majority of them to USC. Whereas if he goes to LSU, you know, while it's a terrific program too, LSU, you're going to have to battle for every recruit if Nick Saban wants them or if Kevin Sumlin's trying to get or whoever is trying to trying to go recruit. And I think that makes it more of an uphill battle. You still have Alabama there where, you know, I think it's almost like you have to screw it up at USC to not be an elite program. Now, Lynn Swan is an unknown, but by the way, at LSU, I was told yesterday by a source on Sunday that it's 50-50 whether Joe Oliva, the AD, is back next year. So, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about the power structure there too. It'll be interesting to see whether, because look, LSU, there's a lot to like about that job. You, you know, you're going to make tons of money. You're in a great state for recruiting. You're in... Uh, you know, a conference where you're not lacking for exposure, but how many coaches might be turned off by just why do I want to uh, buy heads with Nick Saban every year? Why do I want to, um, you know, the, the be in the same division as the biggest machine in college football right now? Now, the counterpoint to well, that would you, be he's not going to coach forever. Do you, like, if you're looking at, how would you feel about Larry Fedora if LSU end up hiring him? I'd be fine with that, and not just because uh, – he just had that fantastic uh, last-second touchdown pass to beat uh, Pitt the other day. Um, he's a good coach. And the question, I guess, is, you know, the, the standard there is so high now. He is a good coach, but he still not be satisfactory to the faithful. He's a good – He's the other thing is not only he's a good coach, he's a really good offensive coach. He's from, you know, he's from uh, Texas. He coached – at U, at Southern Miss and did really well, which is actually not far from from LSU. So I think on paper he's a pretty solid option uh, as they look at it. Um, Lane Kiffin, you, Lane Kiffin or Larry Fedora? Who I don't want to say who intrigues you more because I think you're going to say Lane Kiffin. But who do you think would be a better hire for LSU if they ended up with, with those two options? Probably Larry Fedora, just because he's a proven head coach, and Lane Kiffin has been a unmitigated disaster as a head coach but i give lane kiffin i think he'll be very much in the mix because of what we just talked about the you know the the target here the moving target here is alabama how do we beat alabama oh i got an idea let's hire away the offensive coordinator who has helped nick saban you know basically kind of modernize his program the last couple years i definitely think he'll be in play yeah it's a possibility certainly if they beat lsu in Baton Rouge, that would help his cause some. Can uh, we uh, pause for a second here? And, you know, this is something that's bothered me in the last 24 hours. I get why the the media instinct when a coach is fired is to start thinking about the replacement. That's inevitable. But, it, like, Les Miles was a part of was, – was, th- this is not a coach who went, you know, 15 and 20 and got fired. Th- this guy was – to me, just synonymous with LSU football for the last 12 years, and not just for what happened on the field. I mean, easily the most one of the most interesting personalities as a coach, and and nobody's kind of stopping to you know do a bit of a Les Miles celebration. But you know, you're starting to see articles. I, I'm, I have one up here right now on ESPN.com, David Ching, where they're aggregating some of his best quotes uh, from his time there. And it's kind of like when a celebrity dies, and and you, and you oh, I, I forgot about that moment. I forgot about that moment. Can I just read a few of these? Can we just take a minute and yes, you, and, and yes. salute the great quotable Please. Les Miles? Do you remember when they asked him what he did on his summer vacation? And he said, uh, I went to Austin, took my three children with me. So he had six, two parents, four children on that campus. It was miserable. I hated it, but it was great fun. <laughs> 
the one that uh, I think is his defining press conference moment was when Kirk Herbstreet reported the morning of the SEC championship that he was taking the Michigan job. So Les called an impromptu press conference to refute that. I'm the head coach at LSU. I will be the head coach at LSU. I have no interest in talking to anybody else. I got a championship game to play, and I'm excited about the opportunity of my damn strong football team to play in it. And it's really all I'd like to say. It was unfortunate that I had to address my team um, with this information this morning. Uh, but that being done, I think we'll be ready to play. There'll be no questions from me. I represent me in this issue. Please ask me after. I'm busy. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Um, I don't remember what game. Oh, after beating Ole Miss in 2012. Just so you know, proud of those men. How freaking easy it would have been to say it's their night. How freaking easy. Excuse my language. Spectacular group of men. You go find them, you throw your arms around them, you give them a big kiss on the mouth if you're a girl. <laughs> I mean, it was moments like that. And, of course, eating grass. Um, I hope, well, I'll ask you the question I asked on Twitter today. If you had, if you're a betting man a year from now, I'm going to give you four choices. Last Miles is a Power 5 head coach, a Group of 5 head coach, a television analyst, or an Alabama analyst? Uh, I say television analyst, and maybe that's a little wishful thinking because I really, really uh, just enjoy him for a lot of those reasons you said. He's just unique, and um, he's a lot smarter than most people ever give him credit for being, and he he can laugh at himself, so I, I think he'd be a star there. I'm with you. I've seen sentiment that um, people saying, oh, my gosh, somebody's going to snap him up. He's a national championship coach. You know, if you're you're struggling, why wouldn't you want him to be your coach? Well, he's 62, and you know, there's this inherent ageism in college football coaching. Everybody wants the next young guy who who's going to connect with recruits and do all the social media stuff. You know, everybody thought. I mean, a lot of people thought soon Phil Fulmer would get another job the next year. He did not. Uh, there have been many other examples of that. I just can't imagine that a high enough profile program to intrigue him would turn around and hire a 62 year old coach. And given that or TV, I would choose TV. Yeah. By the way, my, one of my lasting images of Les miles, it's really not just a Les miles thing, but it was at sec media days about three years ago. And you know, the room is, is packed. It's like overflowing with people. And I remember sitting near uh, his SID, Michael Bonnet, who's kind of like a, I would call him like a more suave version of Andy Staples, you know. Um, Bonnet I is like, would never have thought of that comparison, but okay. You see it a little bit, right? Now that you mention it, I do, yes. Okay. So he's thumbing through his phone. I don't know if he's like looking at social media comments or whatever, but he's got his head down for most of it. And probably two-thirds of the way through the, through the press conference – there's a question from the back of the room, not that far from where Michael is, and it's a it's a person basically asking a scheme scheme specific question about uh, something with the defensive line, and you know it's like almost challenging less less on something. And the person who asked it uh, was Cole Kubilik, who is a former Auburn offensive lineman who's way more versed in X's and O's than probably 98, 99% of the people who were in that press conference. But the look on Bonnet's face, he like looked up and it was almost like the the expression I would describe as who just farted. It was like a whole look of like, what the hell is going on here? And it was just, it was just kind of funny to see, wait a minute, who is challenging him on this now? And I, I always felt like you would get that with less where a lot of people was always, he just didn't get the benefit of the doubt sometimes from a lot of people when it came to that, you know, and I don't know. Here's a guy who won a national title and won a ton of games. And Well, it's a good point. I remember writing a column. It was, it was you know, we're all kind of in the moment now of this downfall they had on offense and they wanted to fire him because he lost five straight to Alabama. I feel like he spent 12 years trying not to get fired. There was a contingent or a section of the LSU fans that were always wanting to run him off. 
And the moment I always think of is, you know, you remember it, I'm sure, the Tennessee game in 2010 where it was just pure pandemonium at the end. The clock was about to run out on LSU again, and the center was savvy enough to just snap the ball, even though the quarterback wasn't ready and nothing, you know, they weren't going to be able to actually run a play. He snapped the ball, and Tennessee got called for too many men on the field, and they got bailed out. But it was you know, yet another moment, and I feel like there were three or four of these within a few years, where it looked like he had no idea what he was doing on the sideline. And I just remember I've never gotten more angry emails from a fan base about their coach after a win than I did after that game. I mean, they thought, this guy's incompetent. National championship or not, he has no idea what he's doing. And I think that that never quite went away. Okay, yeah, I I think you're right. Uh, Let's transition to another extremely passionate fan base that also saw a guy that had been blamed for a lot get fired over the weekend, and that's at Notre Dame and defensive coordinator Brian Van Gorder. Uh, Again, this was not a shocking thing. How surprised are you, though, that Notre Dame has struggled as much as the Irish have? They, They obviously lost this past weekend against Duke. They are one and three. Um, we yeah. thought Texas was really good in the opener. Maybe <laughs> Texas isn't so good. I mean, this is why it's good to get out and, and see teams in the preseason because you just get a much better sense of them. And I, that day, I just keep getting back to that media day at Notre Dame where, first of all, you watch practice, and <laughs> it's easier to get a read on the quarterbacks and the offense at a practice than it is the defense, but – you didn't see any Jalen Smiths out there on defense, to say the least. And then I sat at Brian Wingorder's table, and the beat writers are asking him all these questions. And they know the team a lot more than I do. And and I start to realize from their questions, his answers, like, they don't have any pass rushers. They don't have anybody who they feel confident can rush the passer. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, the first two losses didn't surprise me. But to lose at home to Duke in a high-scoring game, Duke – couldn't score on Northwestern, couldn't score on Wake Forest. Adrian, our uh, social media guy who played at Duke, was in the uh, room with us. Like He couldn't believe what was happening. Um, that That's inexcusable. It's absolutely inexcusable. And he, Okay, so he fires Brian Van Gorder. That's not surprising. But this goes deeper than – you can't blame this on Tyron X's and O's. Notre Dame does not have the talent on defense that it has pa- had the past few years. Yeah, I had a stat in my column. Notre Dame has allowed five plays of 60 yards or longer. That is worse than the country. I just said for context, in the 2012, 2013, and 2014 seasons combined, they gave up five plays of that length. That's crazy that they've been just had so many uh, huge plays go against them. And those are the kind of things that are just momentum crushers. And I think, like you said, it's not just the not just the pass rushers. You know, they lost Sean Crawford, who they had huge expectations for. He missed all of last year. And then after, I think, one game, he's gone for the rest of this year with an injury. But it's more than, you know, they were banged up last year and they were able to to keep it on track for a pretty, pretty good season. I mean, if you're a Notre Dame fan, that Max are Redfield, you panicking? Yeah, I mean, the Max Redfield um, dismissal. dismissal also has obviously affected that secondary. Yeah, of course I'm panicking. And... You can now see for the first time the tide turning against Brian Kelly. I think, you know, the last couple of years, the fact that he took them to their first uh, national championship game in a quarter century was obviously getting him a lot of mileage. Now they're feeling like, well, wait a minute, one in three, um, things are going wrong across the board. I don't know. Do you think Brian, they're not going to fire Brian Kelly after the season. I mean, let's just make that clear. Jack Swarbrick's not going to fire Brian Kelly. But do you think Brian Kelly maybe regret? He's had chances to get out of there, and do you think maybe he's regretting that right now? I don't know. I, my guess is he's probably not. The thing that's tricky is, you know, Brian Van Gorder was a guy who worked with them for like you know twenty five years ago when they were small school coaches in Michigan. So I, I don't know how much he's how much that decision has probably come back to bite him. I, I'm curious to see who he would have, uh, you know, who you know who ends up with that direction. I mean, Greg Hudson was a guy who had been a high well really well thought of defensive coach you know a while back ago and now let's see if he can improve the defense i mean if they i don't know if you look at it it's like you want to see how they respond because 
even if they go, what do they have? Seven games left, even if or eight games left, even if they go six and two, you're still talking about a team that would be, you know, really licking its wounds from a season where they were preseason top ten. And um, I, I don't know where they go from here, to be honest. Because well, I'll, I'll tell you terri- where they go. They go to East Rutherford, New Jersey, next weekend, and play a Syracuse team that they are supposed to be much better than. But as we know, with Dino Babers, is going to throw the ball around. And, yeah, I could see some more big plays coming in that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, but let's just give them the benefit of the doubt that they take care of business against the Orange and at NC State. I don't know why we would give them the benefit of the doubt. They just lost to Duke. But let's just get them to three and three. Then you got. Back-to-back games against Stanford and Miami. I, I don't think they would be expected as of today to win those games. And, you know, you and I are both very high on David Cutcliffe. And and they've had great success there the last five years or so. But they started this season out. You know, they lost Thomas Sirk, their quarterback. And, you know, you, you lose to North Wake and then at Northwestern, who themselves are, are frankly not good. Um, what indication would you possibly have that they're going to go win in South Bend? Well, that's true. That is true. I do know that that staff really loves Daniel Jones, the freshman quarterback in there, but he's still a freshman, and you wouldn't have thought he would have responded so well. But to uh, your point earlier that after 10 years or so they just get tired of you, you know, that there's no school where that's seen as more true than at Notre Dame. They got tired of Lou Holtz eventually. Um, I feel like you – but it takes a lot – it doesn't take 10 years. It takes five years or less. Uh that place spits out coaches, and you know, here's a guy who led them to their best season in 25 years or so. But you know, Greg Doyle, the uh, columnist in Indianapolis, pointed out, you know, that was a season where they caught a lot of breaks to be able to go undefeated in the regular season. They haven't come close to that before or since. It's been a lot of eight and five type of seasons. Last year, obviously. I thought that he did a great coaching job last season, getting them to ten wins. Agreed. With all the totally injuries agree. they had, but. Right from the outset, the weird juggling of the quarterbacks. This has not been a well-managed season. We'll see if he can turn it around. All right, Stu. My favorite sponsor is back. That's Dollar Shave Club. Guys, you do not need to choose between price and quality to get amazing and affordable shave. DollarShaveClub.com is the answer. To prove how amazing their shave really is, Right now, they're going to give you your first month free to join the club. DollarShaveClub.com delivers amazing razors right to my door for a third of the price of what the greedy razor corporations charge. I wonder if we're going to hear about these greedy razor corporations. Yeah, I wonder if there's been some sort of like uh, um, dateline investigation into the greedy razor corporations. I know. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com and pick a razor that works for you from their line of amazing blades, and that's all there is to it. Actually, Stu, there isn't all that. That's that's it. You know what else there is? You smell fantastic. I'm not kidding when I say when I use their body wash, it's like I'm the Pied Piper of feel good. Everywhere I go, everybody's in a better mood. It's because I know I smell good. Did and you that, just, I'm, when you I'll walked just... down the sidelines on Saturday in Corvallis, did the, did the seas part for this, you know, this guy with the amazing scent? Not only that, Brian Harson, who's not always the most media open guy, was like, where is my sideline interview guy? Get him over here. I just want to feel good going in. That's so, amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Uh, with Dollar Shave Club, you can look and smell, Stu. That's the big one for me. And shave like a million bucks without paying for it. So here's the call to action. Here's your chance to see why over three million members like me love Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all their products. Now you can get your first month of the club for free. All you have to do is pay for shipping. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it. See, even the double negative works for Dollar Shave Club just because it's so fragrantly pleasant. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash audible. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash audible. Well, we've got two sponsors this week, uh, and I'm going to tell you about SeatGeek. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone. It is by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few taps, I can instantly find seats for this weekend or any game this season. With SeatGeek, you always get the best deal on every ticket because SeatGeek price compares for you by searching multiple ticket sites. Prices can vary depending on where you shop, but SeatGeek will always find you 
the lowest available price. Plus, every ticket you buy on SeatGeek is backed by their 100% guarantee. And best of all, Bruce, and this is going to come in handy if you're going to one of those big top 10 games this weekend, our listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. So to get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code AUDIBLE, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. So thank you, SeatGeek. Speaking of coaches turning things around, uh, I think Butch Jones was probably seeing his uh, coaching life flash before his eyes at halftime in the Florida game on Saturday, 21-3. He got himself off the mat, Tennessee got himself off the mat, and just obliterated Florida from there, ended that streak with a, with a, you know, made no, um, left nothing to chance about ending that 11-year drought. So, you never wavered from the Butch Jones bandwagon. Should I jump back on it? Yes, I will extend an olive branch to you so you can daintily step on this bandwagon. The reason why I didn't waver actually came through, which was the leadership in the locker room was a lot better than it's been. And the the first guy that Bob Shoup, the new defensive coordinator, mentioned to me when I was there in the spring was Derek Barnett. And so when I talked to Shoup Saturday night, you know, he came back to that and he was like, Derek Barnett basically said, everybody climb on my back. I'm taking over. And he said, I don't know if I've ever seen a player in, you know, 30 years of coaching do what he did. Now, Derek Barnett is a, is a good defensive lineman who's very, very productive. And he basically challenged a couple of his teammates in a midweek practice. He said they were not being accountable to coaching. And then he took over the game in the second half, had a couple of sacks, three more pressures, broke up a pass. And for them to shut down Florida's offense, look, Florida was banged up on offense too, but for them to shut down a team and force three and outs on seven of eight second half series, when you're doing it without your best cornerback, Cam Sutton, your two best linebackers, uh, especially when everybody else is booing you and, and the whole stadium is kind of, I don't say turned on them, but kind of written you off. That's pretty impressive. Oh, they turned on them. They booed the team off the field at halftime. They went from, you know, all hope is lost to, all right, we're back to on course to win the national championship in the span of 30 minutes. Certainly, like you said, you know, give a lot of credit to the defense who just completely shut Florida down in the second half. But, you know, the star of the show is Josh Dobbs. I've gotten on him. Everybody's gotten on him at times. And, Four touchdown passes against a really good Florida defense. Um, I didn't think he had it in him, to be quite frank. So you look ahead, and you know and th- that coming on the same day that Georgia got run off the field at right. Ole Miss, I don't think anybody is under the delusion anymore that that team has a chance to to have a great season. You know, now Tennessee's got basically a two game lead by a tiebreaker on Florida. I mean, it's hard to imagine at this point that they won't win the SEC East, and that was pretty much the 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 baseline goal that Bush Jones needed to meet this year. Yeah, and I think they're also going to get a little more healthy now. Darren Kirkland, who's, who's their most talented linebacker, he may make it back. He's missed the last couple of weeks. Uh, he may make it back for the Georgia game. If not, uh, the, it's funny. Georgia looks so much worse of an opponent, and now Texas A&M, look, who they get the, in between Georgia and Al, the Alabama game, Texas A&M looks way more formidable. And... You know, I had a chance to watch that game against Arkansas. They ran for almost 400 yards against a team that likes to, you know, pump its chest as being physical. I think this is a much different team than the ones the last two years when they had fast starts because, A, they can really run the football, and, B, their defense has finally come of age. It's not just Miles Garrett. I mean, you saw – I don't know, I guess you we were starting to tape our Facebook Live show, but they had a third and goal. It's Arkansas – they ran wide and it turned out to be uh, on a fourth down, but it turned out to be like a six yard loss. And I think we've seen between Trevor Knight kind of getting it going with his legs, you know, they had some quarterback draws. We've seen Travion Williams. He's one of the best freshmen in the country. He's a dynamic running back. This is a pretty interesting team. Now Um, this is kind of, you know, you talk about pre-camp visits. I came back from college station in, you know, mid August going, man, I think these guys have a chance. 
And this is this, this is why I was was a believer. I mean, I don't think they're going to beat Alabama and win the SEC, but I think they're a top fifteen team, and they they're looking at like it. Are you are you ready to get on get back on this bandwagon that you were a year too early to get on I, last year? No, I never left the A and M bandwagon. I had them ranked fairly high in the preseason. I had them, I want to say nine and three, and I feel like that is, you know, maybe even a little modest at this point. I, they're the second best team in that division. Um, I could see Ole Miss. I'm not writing off Ole Miss. I know they had the two early losses, but clearly that offense has a lot of firepower. And so maybe I, maybe it's Ole Miss that ends up the second-best team. But uh, you, So you give A&M no chance to knock off the Tide? No, I didn't say I give them no chance. I mean, look, uh, Trevor Knight actually beat the Tide once before. I mean, A&M has some really – really talented guys in the D line. Uh, you know, I know that you have a really mobile quarterback there, but he's still a freshman. I mean, I think I could see John Chavis given, given, uh, given Alabama's offense, some issues, which so, game do you think Alabama has the best chance of? Cause since 2009, the last three national title teams did lose a game at some point. So which game on this schedule is Alabama most likely to lose? It's not going to be Kentucky this week. So, at Arkansas on October 8th, mm. at Tennessee on October 15th, Texas A&M on the 22nd, or at LSU on November 5th? This is the toughest question. This is the toughest question we've got today. I, um, I'm kind of dismissing Arkansas probably, and I shouldn't. Uh, I remember last year Tennessee almost beat them in, in, uh, in Tuscaloosa, and Tennessee's a better team than they were last year considerably, I think. You know, my hunch is that LSU is going to do it. Really? I know that's crazy. The, the, of all the teams you mentioned, they're the one that's down the most. Right. I, I mean, again, you're, I guess you're, 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 I mean, so you're saying that you think over the, you know, with Ed Orgeron and the change in play callers that they're going to get that offense going because they're not going to beat Alabama with no passing game. No, and that's the thing. It's not like I mean he, he's promoted up Steve Ensminger as we reported yesterday on the site, but it's not like he he he's got Chip Kelly on that staff or Tom Herman or you know Dana Holgerson. I mean I don't you know I'm sure a lot of Auburn fans aren't going to go well. We're not scared of Steve Ensminger, but you know that defense can still be pretty nasty, and they still have Leonard Fournette. I don't know. I think that. Just a hunch. I think that they're gonna that that would be a really raucous environment there. That that game, if things start to get a little momentum, I don't know. I, I'm probably way or I'm probably so far wrong on this, and maybe nobody beats them. If you had to rank those four opponents in order of most likely to to beat Alabama, how would you rank it? Yeah, I'd have to rank Tennessee one. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'd have Arkansas two, just because it's at Arkansas. A and M three, LSU four. Okay, but it is in Baton Rouge as you know. You, you're given the that, home that field advantage. Yeah, that hasn't mattered as much in that rivalry. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, they've they've both won big games on the other team's field. Um, not that Alabama's really been bothered by Neyland in the past, but you know, I'll tell you what. We were watching that game. The way you get those games sometimes at Fox is, and I I don't want to even try to describe the tech. You are getting the feed directly from the network instead of you know what right. people are watching on TV, and I for whatever reason TV people could explain this better than me. The background, the crowd noise, and everything is much louder than it would be normally. Um, that place sounded—I don't know how anybody team would go in and win in that stadium the way it sounded the other day. I had Rocky Top stuck in my head for for ever since uh, it was so loud. Was Pete in there on uh, Saturday? He was not. Um, it was actually kind of a light uh, baseball day on Saturday. So, no. No Pete Rose. I'm sure I'll be seeing him, though, soon at some point. Yeah, I saw him I saw him last week when I was in there. So, I thought of you. Hey, we've gone this long. We haven't mentioned a team that I think had the best win of the weekend, and that was Wisconsin. Um, not just that they beat Michigan State at Michigan State, but beat them 30-6. to six. That is their second top 10 win before the month of September was even over. And yet the Badgers, you know, now they got to turn around and go to Michigan. And I saw that they're like a 10 point underdog. When, when are people going to give the Badgers some love? 
Uh, I don't know. They'd have to win the division and come out of this unscathed. I think, unfortunately, and I'm more guilty of this than probably anybody, I think I'm going to be picking against them almost this whole stretch. They're going up again. So I, I, we both talked to Paul Christ on Sunday, and uh, the one of the questions I asked him was, how surprising is it to you that you guys have done this and yet you're 12th in the big 10, big 10 in yards per carry. And he was like, Hmm, I didn't really know that. And he was just like, we got to run the ball better, but it's not, you know, the offensive line. It's a, it's every little thing, but you know, for Alex Hornibrook to be leading the country in third down passing and some of the things that are going on in the defense, I mean, you know, you mentioned Justin Wilcox name, the defensive coordinator now for the Badgers out here in Southern California. And, you know, USC fans will turn around and puke on the floor and he's got them going. I mean, they're playing, they've given up only three offensive touchdowns in four games. And, you know, I don't care whether LSU's offensive struggle. I mean, that's Leonard Fournette and that's, you know, Michigan state on the road, Michigan state lit up Notre Dame. Granted, Notre Dame isn't very good, but it's still, you know, a very good team. So I don't know. They're my biggest surprise. Now they're facing a defense that is much better than than even what they just saw, at least statistically, at Michigan State. Do you think they're going to cover Michigan, or do you think it's going to be, you know, a nail biter here? I honestly hadn't thought about the, the whether they're going to cover or not yet, but I I think it's unwise to rule them out or to go ahead and anoint Michigan based just on what they've done so far against some overmatched teams. The thing about Wisconsin that's so impressive is that that defense, um, Dave Aranda leaves. You know he's he's going to be the savior at LSU. Justin Wilcox comes in, like you said, off a undistinguished tenure at SC, and they haven't missed a beat. And watching that Michigan State game, watching them, they're just constantly in the backfield. I don't think when you think of Wisconsin over the years, you necessarily think of a fast, athletic defense. That's just not their mo. I mean, like you said, their mo is that they've got a Melvin Gordon or a money ball back there and they run it down your throat and they're just not able to do that right now but they are suffocating people on defense i know they got another watt dj watt was in the backfield that whole game um yeah i hate to keep doubting them i don't think they're gonna beat michigan and ohio state uh but i think they're very good i think they could win that division nebraska though has also been a bit surprising to me tommy armstrong Mm -hmm. uh is a different quarterback i mean he's not turning the ball over He's efficient as a passer, and he had his career-high uh, rushing game the other night, 132 yards against Northwestern. So I know that um, this was supposed to be the Iowa division. Uh, Iowa had a nail-biter the other day at Rutgers, and I think it's going to be Wisconsin or Nebraska. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Tommy, Tommy Armstrong. I had a little note on him on my column. You know, I think he had 16 picks last year. So far, eight touchdowns passing, only one INT. Um, you know, if he plays like this and he cuts the mistakes down, they have really good receivers. They have some speed on defense. Uh, a lot of credit. Danny Langsdorf is a guy, you know, whose name doesn't come up a ton when people talk about assistant coaches. He was a big influence on Tom Herman way back in Tom Herman's days. Helped really d- taught him uh, the position of quarterback. Tom was a college receiver. And it seems like Langsdorf and Mike Riley have done a really nice job uh, developing Tommy Armstrong, who's who's a pretty dynamic player, you know, as a runner, passer option. And frankly, too, it's so. a little surprising because he doesn't fit the mold of the kind of quarterbacks they had at Oregon State. And, you know, I remember talking to Mike Riley at, at Big Ten Media Days last year, and he was talking a big game about, well, we're going to, you know, we're going to take some of the Oregon offense. We're going to take some of these spread elements, and we're going to adapt it to the quarterback we have. And then it didn't look like they were able to do that at all um, for most of last season. But, yeah. They're looking good. Oregon, the team that they beat the week before, not looking so good. Uh, lost at home to Colorado. We Was it a few weeks ago? Was it before the season? Was it in the season that we had a Mike McIntyre question? And we were both saying you know, that we're big on Mike McIntyre and we think he can still turn it around. That was a big win. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was sitting there watching the game uh, in our hotel with, uh, with Brando and Spencer and our friend Lindsay Schnell from SI had come over and like a couple of seconds before the game is over. And Mike is like, 
like almost sobbing uncontrollably, it looked like. And any if, if you know him, you're just like, you know, you feel for him because you, you could see how big a deal that was because, you know, we, we've been around like Clatt where Colorado gives somebody a scare last year and then just can't close the deal. I mean, and even a week before, you know, they had Michigan down and then all of a sudden, you know, Cepho gets hurt. And then in this case, it's his backup quarterback, Steven Montez, who he has really talked up a lot before he really ever had a chance to play. He came through and, you know, you can put this on Oregon, whatever you want, but to win there for Colorado and for him um, was a pretty awesome moment for, you know, to see that picture of him, how emotional he was, especially he's been through a lot. He's the son of a coach. His dad had a, had a really, really tough battle with a serious illness. And, you know, so he saw the erosion of his dad. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of that probably went through his head as he was, you know, having that moment. Yeah, there's no question. I, I you rarely see a coach get that emotional after a regular season win, but this was not just any win. This was Oregon. This is a program that's been one of the powers in that conference. And, uh, you know, like you said, so many close calls. I feel like every year they almost beat UCLA, and then something happens at the end and they don't. And, you know, he knows how hard this rebuilding job has been. I mean, how, just how far down that program was. And then for the first three years, they go 1-8, and 0-9, oh and, and 1-8 and in the Pac-12. So Colorado, now they're 1-0 and oh in the Pac-12. They're going to turn around and play Oregon State this week. You've seen Oregon, you saw Oregon State in person this week. I'm going to guess you're picking the buffs. Yeah, like uh, right now, Oregon State, you know, their offensive line is very depleted defensively they're very shaky i mean they gave up over 200 rushing yards jeremy mcnichols from boise state who's a really good running back but um you know i'm not i'm not on board of thinking oregon state's going to turn around and and cu's going to ride this emotional crest and then just fall apart i think cu's going to be able to build on it yeah and so where i'm going with this is we got to try to get the buffs to six wins so that would be three and one now i'm just going to go through the schedule here at usc at one and three usc there's a chance there's a chance. There's a chance. Home against ASU. I, I, you know, who knows what ASU shows up there. Have you been watching? ASU keeps playing in the late night games. Yeah. And they keep going on these fourth quarter explosions where you're like, holy cow, I didn't realize they, they were that. They explosive. had a couple of pick sixes in that game where, the, you know, they have some. And they returned an onside was, kick for a touchdown. Yeah. Uh, Solomon Fiso. He was, I think he missed the first three games. He was back and he made some big plays for them. You know, what's interesting to me is Kellen Balaj, who had eight touchdowns against Texas Tech, you know, he hadn't done much since. It was their other guys who've kind of come through. Yeah. So I don't know. They're a tough read. So who do you got after ASU? Uh, at Stanford. I don't like their chances there. No. UCLA at home on a Thursday night on mm. FS1. I don't know. I think you said win that game. At Arizona? They definitely have a chance there. Washington State at home, Utah at home. Yeah, the two the, the two toughest games for them, I think, are Utah and Stanford. But otherwise, I think they have a shot at all those opponents. Yeah, so I think they'll find three in there. That would be a big, big, big moment for Colorado football. Um, well, we spent a lot of time on this podcast kind of recapping what happened in week four. But this coming uh, week, week five, Three games between top 10 teams. The first time that's happened in one weekend since 2002. Starting off with a big Pac-12 game Friday night. Stanford at Washington. We've been on board the Washington hype bandwagon for nine months. This is their chance to prove it. I mean, really, they're they're in the top 10 because we all decided they should be. They, they you know, played their first decent game test the other night and went to overtime against Arizona. Um, rarely do you see a team that I think that the country's going to be tuning in to see, okay, what you got? Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think back to visiting Washington and, and just going to Chris Peterson, Hey, I think I'm picking you to, you know, in the pack 12. And it was almost like I said, Hey, I'm going to have an IS, IRS agent come over here and audit you. He was like, <laughs> he kind of like wins. He was like, I don't want anybody getting on our bandwagon. Just, just stay away. You know, like, well, we'll as it turned out, everybody got on their bandwagon. Yeah. Uh, so the so second one in that series uh, we we already kind of talked about Wisconsin Michigan Saturday afternoon and then the big one that I'll be traveling to Saturday night Louisville Clemson I think we can agree I, I think you said it on our show the other night the the 
most intriguing game of the season so far. Yeah, love it. And I don't think anyone would have said that even three weeks ago that that would have been the matchup. But can't wait. I can't wait for this. I mean, this is fun. I mean, we had very interesting games last weekend. And obviously this weekend, you know, it should be should be really, really good. It's kind of a a prove it contest between Louisville and and Washington, certainly, because they were the trendy picks. Uh, They get a chance to show us if we're smart or not. If Louisville wins this game at Clemson, by the way, watch out because the rest of their schedule until that Houston game it are a bunch of teams that they're going to score 60 points on. So, you know, this I'm not going to go so far as to say this is their season, but if they win this one, I mean, think about it. They, we, all we talked about all offseason is Florida State and Clemson. For them to knock off both those teams in the first five weeks would be huge. But uh, Clemson's still the favorite. Clemson has shown – Definitely some cracks on offense, but they still have a dominant defense. I think we're going to get into that one in more detail on our second podcast of the week. Um, You know, I think, as I wrote on Monday morning, the first month of the season, to me, the dominant storylines were more about the teams that were going belly up, right? LSU, who ends up firing their coach. USC, what a train wreck that is. Notre Uh, Dame. Dame. You know, people, and, and I don't know if this is more of a recent thing, but there's definitely a fascination in college football with, with these train wreck stories. But now it's time to start talking playoff because uh, these three games could have a pretty big impact down the road, um, especially the Stanford-Washington game, which I think I would be shocked if the winner of that doesn't go on to win the Pac-12 North. It would mean that, you know, I mean, injuries can happen and whatnot, but, you know, I can't see anybody but those two teams winning the North, so... Uh, whoever wins will be up, will have a leg up. And then uh, Clemson Louisville has just enormous implications, obviously, regardless of the results. So can't wait. And uh, we will, like I said, we will, we will get into all of those when we come back later this week. So, uh, and we're going to answer your emails in that one. So send them to the audible pod at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoy the audible, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We'll see you next time.